Black Missing and Missing is dedicated to the Black women, men, and children whose stories are missing from the media and oftentimes missing the justice they deserve. On a November evening in 2013, 28-year-old physical therapist Alfred Wright is en route to a home visit for a patient in Hemp Hill, Texas. He would never make it. After calling his wife to let her know he was stranded, she called his parents, who didn't hesitate to make the half-hour trip from their home in Jasper to their son's location in Hemp Hill. When his parents arrived at the convenience store they were told he'd be at, they found only his abandoned truck. Eighteen days after first being reported as missing, Alfred is found in the woods, dead. Did law enforcement in this East Texas community entrenched in racism participate in a cover-up in the death of Alfred Wright? Could they have played a more direct role? Or did Alfred keep secrets in life from those closest to him that contributed to and were revealed in his death? Hello, and thank you for joining me for the fourth episode of Black Missing and Missing. Today's episode, today, tonight, whenever, wherever, takes place in East Texas. If you're not from Texas, then there's a good chance that East Texas never crosses your mind. But because East Texas plays such an important part in this true crime tale, we're going to start out with an introduction to the region for those unfamiliar. Now, while there are actually people who question whether or not Texas is really part of the South, and as crazy as that is, I get it, because I don't consider El Paso to be part of the South, despite being in Texas. West Texas is culturally and geographically Southwestern, and that's not up for debate. But there's no denying that East Texas is part of the South. It's actually considered the westernmost extension of the Deep South. You can definitely tell the difference between the Texas twang of the more urban areas and the drawl of the Deep South and East Texas. <laughs> All right, I know that's terrible. East Texas is part of the Black Belt, which is a term for a region that stretches from Virginia to Texas. During the antebellum or pre-Civil War days, the region was known for numerous cotton and tobacco plantations, which of course used slave labor. Blacks outnumbered whites significantly, and today the term is applied to areas where the Black people account for at least 25% of the population. Now, as someone who has visited the region numerous times and even lived there once briefly, there's definitely a culture of a racial hierarchy. 
So I'll just explain what I mean by that. And some people may disagree or may not like what I'm about to say, and that's okay. These are my observations. But again, there's a culture of a racial hierarchy. And yes, duh, of course, this is America. But in the Deep South, particularly in the rural areas of the Black Belt, it seems to be more pronounced. There's almost a fear among Black people. I guess a better word would be passivity. Just an acceptance for the way things are. That's the way it is. That's the way it's always been. And I reckon that's the way it will always be. I mean, sure, blacks and whites coexist. Things are desegregated. People marry interracially. But there's still something ingrained in the culture. I remember about 20 or so years ago, I was in one of these small towns, and I heard a conversation between two men, one black, the other white. They were older, I'd say probably 50s or 60s. Anyway, they were discussing some work the white man needed done on his ranch, and the white man said he was going to hire, and I quote, that colored boy, Charlie. Now, I just knew the white man was about to get mollywhopped, dog walked, have his handed to him. But no. The black man responded with, and I quote, don't hire that nigger, hard R. I'll do the work for you, boss. I said to myself, I have to hurry up and get the out of here and never come back. And that's exactly what I did. Anyway, I just wanted to set the stage for life in rural deep south, particularly small town East Texas and identify the racist undertones. Did I say this is the case with everyone and in every town? No. So now that that's done, let's get into the case. Alfred Nehemiah Wright was born on March 8, 1985, in Galveston County, Texas, the fourth of Rosalind and Douglas Wright's five children. Alfred's sister, Cassilia, said that as the two most rebellious siblings, she and Alfred had a special bond. They were social butterflies and independent thinkers. Alfred was described as his father as being bold, and it has been said that growing up, he had an affinity for white girls, two things which were cause for concern for Alfred's well-being. In 1988, Douglas and Rosalind moved their family to Jasper, Texas, where Douglas became pastor of the Jasper Circuit Memorial United Baptist Church. That's a lot. Jasper Circuit Memorial United Baptist Church. He also became a gym coach with the Jasper School District and noticed the disparity in the way black students were treated versus their white counterparts and saw that they were often met with intimidation. The same was true for the rest of the town, with Douglas stating that Jasper was run like a plantation. In 1998, when Alfred was 13 years old, Jasper made international news when James Byrd, a 49-year-old black man, was the victim of a horrifically gruesome murder committed by three white supremacists. James was chained by the ankles to the back of a pickup truck and dragged for three miles 
His murderers dumped his partial remains behind a black church. His head and arm were located about a mile and a half away. Former Jasper City Council member Rashad Lewis was quoted by KERA News as saying that as a 12-year-old at the time, he recalled white classmates proudly wearing their Confederate belt buckles and T-shirts immediately following the murder of James Byrd, throwing fuel on the fire of racial hostility. But while the world had its eyes on Jasper, young Alfred continued about his life as a regular teen. He became a star player on the Jasper High School football team. He earned a football scholarship and attended the University of Mary Hardin Baylor in Belton, Texas. Alfred eventually transferred to the University of Tennessee and earned a bachelor's degree in physical therapy. He married Lauren, a friend he'd known since childhood. Along with his son from a previous relationship, he and Lauren had two children, making Alfred the father of three boys. When asked about her husband, Lauren said, quote, he loved his family. He was very ambitious, very driven, and very hardworking. His work ethic was phenomenal. He was fun-loving and brilliant. Alfred practiced physical therapy with the Rayburn Clinic, and shortly before his death, he joined with East Texas Healthcare as an independent therapist making home visits. His schedule required him to travel to the rural town of Hemp Hill every Tuesday and Thursday. It was to one of those home visits he was headed on the evening of November 7, 2013. Sometime between 5 and 6 that evening, Lauren received a call from Alfred, letting her know that he was stranded. He and his 2008 Dodge Ram truck were at the CL&M, a convenience store on Highway 87 in Hemp Hill. Though he was about half an hour away, Lauren was caring for their two- and four-year-old sons who were ill. So she called Rosalind and Douglas, who agreed to make the trip from Jasper to Hemp Hill. At some point, Alfred made contact with the patient he was scheduled to see, letting them know that despite his situation, he would make their appointment. Lauren called Alfred to let him know his parents were on their way, but worry set in soon after the call was connected. According to Lauren, quote, the last time I called him, I just heard heavy breathing. He was in distress of some sort. He was not responding to anything I was saying, end quote. She began sending frantic text messages, begging him to call her and letting him know that his parents were on the way. Rosalind and Douglas arrived at the convenience store on the long, quiet road and found Alfred's truck, but no Alfred. Douglas asked the clerk inside if she'd seen a, quote, clean-cut young black guy. The clerk confirmed that she had indeed seen his son standing by his truck and talking on the phone. About 20 minutes before the rights arrived, however, she claims to have observed Alfred suddenly put his phone inside of his sock, and he took off running like the truck was going to blow up. 
A customer also reported having seen Alfred outside of the store and using the phone from 6.05 to 6.08 p.m. The following day, Friday, November 8th, the Sabine County Sheriff's Office, led by Sheriff Tom Maddox, began the search for Alfred. Searchers included volunteer firefighters, local cops, and federal agents. Dogs were brought in to track Alfred's scent. The mayor of Jasper, Alfred's hometown, flew his own plane in the search. Alfred's family made their way to the area where the search was being conducted, which was the location of a ranch, and it was there that something caught Lauren's eye. Hanging on the barbed wire fence was a piece of blue cloth. It was the same shade of blue and the same material as Alfred's scrubs. When asked to describe the cloth in more detail, Lauren said it was, quote, a perfectly rectangular piece of fabric. It was as if it had been cut perfectly. It didn't look like it had been ripped off, end quote. Several more items found in the vicinity were identified as belonging to Alfred. They included his keys, wallet, and a watch. The watch was an odd find to Lauren, and she said that he'd never have just taken it off. She stated that Alfred had a fetish for watches, and that whenever he had extra money, he'd buy a watch, adding that he'd never have just taken it off. The area where the items were located is on Cousins Drive, which is described as a very dark road deep in the woods. It's bizarre, Rosalind said, adding, my son would never come down that road by himself, walking or running. Despite the search party's findings, the Wright family had reason to believe that the sheriff's office was not that invested or even sincere in their efforts, and that law enforcement had even made up their minds about what happened to Alfred. At one point, Sheriff Maddox was quoted as saying that leading the search was causing him to miss out on good hunting. He even posited that Alfred was on a drug bender and would resurface in a week or two. Troubled by these statements and anxious to find Alfred, family members, along with friends and other residents of Jasper, were ready to join the search, but were turned away. They were given reasons such as they'd arrived too late, or they weren't wearing the right clothes, or they weren't in good enough shape. Meanwhile, Sheila Bennett, who, like Alfred and Lauren, was in an interracial marriage, went to the sheriff's office with what she believed could be a possible lead in Alfred's case. Three weeks earlier, her own husband, who'd been driving on Highway 87 when his truck was struck from behind. When he got out to assess the damage, he was assaulted by two white men who hurled racist slurs at him. This incident took place in Hemp Hill at the very same location where Alfred was last spotted. Sheila said that as she relayed the details to Sheriff Maddox, he stopped her mid-sentence and said, quote, this boy has done this to himself. Maddox insisted the two incidents were unrelated and let a stunned Sheila out of his office. 
Douglas said that Tom Maddox approached him early in the morning on Saturday, November 9th, two days after his son went missing. Maddox told him that it was his belief that Alfred had taken some illegal drugs, specifically meth and cocaine, which made him run wild and pull his clothes off in the process. Maddox attributed this belief to being a recovering addict of 13 years himself. Neither Douglas nor any of Alfred's other family members or friends had known him to be a drug user. But Douglas stuck on the sheriff's insistence on Alfred's use of meth and cocaine knew that if his son were to turn up dead, those two drugs would be found in his system. By Monday, November 11th, four days after Alfred's disappearance, Sheriff Maddox called off the search, stating that nothing suggested foul play, just red flags. At no point during the investigation was Alfred's truck searched or fingerprinted, nor were members of his family asked for sworn statements. As expected, there was backlash to this decision. In a Facebook post lambasting what was seen as law enforcement's lack of effort and calling off the search after only four days, a sheriff's deputy responded with this. He's laid up drinking cold beer, watching football someplace warm, hiding out to keep from going to jail. On Wednesday, November 13th, it was revealed in the local media that Alfred had been charged with theft embezzlement, and misapplication by bank employee and a federal indictment between the time periods of January 3rd through the 26th in 2011 in Memphis, Tennessee. According to Alfred's attorney, he maintained his innocence and despite being offered a plea deal that carried a penalty of little significance, Alfred wanted to go to trial. Lauren also asserted that her husband wanted that trial. With the lack of resources from the sheriff's office and law enforcement seeming indifference, the Wrights made it their mission to find their husband, son, and brother. The family hired Army Special Ops veteran turned private investigator Chuck Foreman. He led the new search party, made up of family, friends, and volunteers from the area. The group combed the same thickly wooded stretch of Highway 87 that had a decade earlier been the scene of a tragedy when the Space Shuttle Columbia carrying seven astronauts broke apart and fell to Earth. The group of amateur searchers braved briars, cold winds, rain, and muddy creeks. On the 18th day after the disappearance, the group had been scouring the area for three hours when a strong wind blew past one of the search party's team leaders. Yatora Kapenda, an ex-Marine from Jasper, knew the unmistakable scent, saying, you could smell death in the air. An article in the Texas Observer described the moments that followed. Kapenda followed the smell to a wall of thick bushes and thorns pushing through. He emerged into a small clearing. He yelled into his walkie-talkie, I found a body. The small clearing was surrounded by bushes and young trees with just one path out 
leading to the pasture officials had searched weeks earlier. Douglas rushed in to see the body. He recognized the angel wings tattooed across his son's shoulders. They killed my boy, he said. They killed my boy. Douglas went on to say that when we first found him, his spirit got me. He said, Daddy, I knew you were going to find me. Alfred was found lying face down a mere 25 yards from where he was last seen and in an area that had supposedly already been searched thoroughly by deputies. His skin was ashy gray with patches of white, his neck discolored, dark like a bruise. Douglas said the first thing he noticed about his son's body was how smooth his forearms and back were. Despite the area's heavy rains, dense underbrush, and sharp barbed wire, the body had no scratches. He was wearing boxer shorts, a single sock with his cell phone tucked inside, and a pair of shoes. His keys were inside of one shoe, under his foot. Further inspection of the body revealed that Alfred's throat appeared to have been cut. He was missing three teeth, a fingernail, his left ear, his tongue, and both eyes. When deputies came to collect the body, Douglas did not trust them enough to allow them to transport his son to a funeral home in Hemp Hill. He insisted on waiting for a Texas Ranger. When one showed up whom he was well acquainted with, his distrust for Sabine County officials was so deep he demanded a different ranger because his acquaintance had at one time worked with Tom Maddox at the Texas Department of Public Safety. He told the ranger, it's not about trusting you. It's about me having to live with this for the rest of my life. As a result, Douglas waited all night for the next closest ranger under a tent in the rain with the body of his son only a few feet away. The next morning, Ranger Steve Rayburn arrived with other law enforcement officials to document the scene. Cold, wet, and tired, Douglas took reprieve at the home of the farmer whose land Alfred was found on. He now regrets the hours he left his son alone with officers. When the autopsy results came back, the Wright family says they were not surprised when the toxicology tests showed Alfred did indeed have drugs in his system, not because they knew Alfred to abuse drugs, but rather based on Sheriff Maddox's assertions. The three drugs that were found in his system were cocaine, methamphetamines, and amphetamines. The medical examiner ruled the death an accident. The cause of death was combined drug intoxication. The same autopsy also inexplicably concluded that Alfred Wright died three hours after his family found his decomposing body. Wright had shallow puncture wounds on the left side of his body, including his left palm, thigh, leg, and abdomen. The college athlete had lost 30% of his body weight. Again, there appeared to be a cut across his neck. 
The rangers say it was made during the autopsy by the medical examiner. However, it was not documented as an entry point in the official report. The autopsy attributed his missing ear, eyes, fingernail, and tongue to insect and animal activity. When asked about the possibility of Alfred using illicit drugs, Lauren initially was not dismissive of the theory. While speaking with authorities when her husband was first reported missing, Lauren said that he'd been acting strange the night before and added that her mind was so gone with worry she didn't want to rule out any possibilities. She went on to say that the couple never talked about drugs. She'd never seen him do drugs, but that Alfred was, however, a very private man who kept things to himself. At this point, the Wright family hired their own pathologist, Dr. Leanne Grossberg, who examined the body. Dr. Grossberg's preliminary findings stated that Alfred's throat had been sliced, his tongue and ear had been cut off, his teeth had been knocked out, and his eyes had been gouged out. Based on her findings, Dr. Grossberg determined there was a, quote, high likelihood of homicidal violence, end quote. Douglas said that when the second toxicology report came back showing drugs in Alfred's system, the FBI stepped in and took over the case. It was at this point that Dr. Grossberg retracted her preliminary findings and ceased all communication with the rights. Additionally, the lawyers representing the family also cut ties. Hmm, curious, curious indeed. The circumstances surrounding Alfred's death, the condition of his body, the questionable behavior of authorities, and instances of racial violence in the area were more than enough to convince many people that Alfred was the victim of murder and that there was a cover-up by law enforcement. The fact that Alfred was found missing an ear, his tongue, and both eyes, hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil, brought speculation that he could have possibly either witnessed or been involved to some degree with nefarious activities. This theory was further cemented when it was learned that a dime was found near the body. In certain circles, a dime signifies dropping a dime or snitching or a warning to others to stay quiet. But Brenda Chastain, former special friend of Sheriff Maddox, said that when she heard about the dime found near Alfred's body, she was spooked. Brenda and Maddox dated for three years, exclusively on her part, but apparently the good sheriff didn't get the memo. Brenda decided to give Sheriff Maddox back to the streets when there were too many strange happenings for her liking, such as a skinned kitten being placed on her doorstep. Also strange was the appearance of dimes in places where they should not have been. She recalled once finding a dime in the top of her car door, positioned so that it would fall when she opened it. Another time, a dime was found tucked between her bed sheets. She pointed out that she does not sleep with coins in her pajamas. Linking the mystery dimes to Maddox, Brenda asked, 
How do they know what side I sleep on? How do they know I didn't sleep on that side? Who knows what side I sleep on? Who knows my habits? With speculation and rumors swirling, Chuck Foreman, the private investigator who led the search for Alfred, was out in search of facts to piece together and figuring out what may have happened to Alfred. According to his findings, Chuck claims that Alfred was having an affair with Cindy Maddox, whose father was none other than Tom Maddox, Sheriff of Sabine County. In an interview, Chuck stated, quote, I've been told by several sources that there was a relationship and the sheriff knew about it. What I don't know is if he knew about it before or after Alfred's death, end quote. Cindy worked at a clinic in Hemp Hill, scheduling appointments for physical therapists. There were also reports that Alfred was seeing another white woman in Hemp Hill. About a month before his disappearance, Alfred checked into a Holiday Inn Express in Jasper. It was one of three times that he was known to have done so. Lauren was not aware of this fact until after Alfred's death. She confirmed that the dates Alfred spent at hotels matched with the same dates she and her two boys had been out of town. Lauren was doubtful that her husband was cheating on her and said that after going through his phone records, she didn't notice anything suspicious, such as repeated calls. Douglas, on the other hand, was allegedly not surprised by the rumors of cheating, saying, quote, If you met Alfred, he would blow you away. Women loved him. He had charisma. There's been speculation that the other white woman Alfred was allegedly seeing was another co-worker, a young woman by the name of Ashley Ener. Ashley was the daughter of former prison guard and Hemp Hill resident, Nathan Ener. Now a little background info on Nathan. To start with, he is not racist, okay? And just so there's no confusion, I will be referring to Nathan from this point on as not racist Nathan, okay? In elementary school, not racist Nathan had a black friend. He called his black friend Puppy, and Puppy called not racist Nathan Sasquatch. Sasquatch even defended Puppy from the real schoolyard racists, and they are still friends to this day at least as of 2014, 2015. Perusing Not Racist Nathan's Facebook page, however, gives the impression that he's not as progressive as he'd like to have you think that he is. Not Racist Nathan has a particular vitriol for civil rights activists who protest against and demand justice and race-related killings of Black people. Here are a few gems from Not Racist Nathan and a face-reddening and vein-bulging tirade. You thugs! You Black Lives Matter bullshit! You bunch of freaking retards! You better run and you better hide, he said. We're gonna hunt you sons of bitches down cause we're pissed off and ain't nobody gonna stop us now, you dirty bastards!
Not Racist Nathan encouraged grandpas, grandmas, and grandkids to band together and attack civil rights activists when they rally in Texas cities. He pulled out a slingshot and described how citizens can damage activists' cars with rocks. You pepper their ass with rocks. You bust the windshields out. You stop them vehicles from running. And when them panthers have to walk or run out of town, they will not come back to your town. Not racist Nathan encouraged even more family bonding through violence. Y'all get that slingshot. Get you some damn rocks. And when they come out in that street, we'll give you a few minutes to pepper their ass. You light them up like they got mumps and measles when they go home with all them bumps and knocks all over their asses. All of you can get in on this. Not racist Nathan then pulled out a shotgun and said he would, quote, take care of what's left of them, end quote, after the rock-throwing tirade. Last freaking thing some of you sons of bitches will hear is that noise right here when we come in your goddamn house, he said as he cocked the weapon. Not Racist Nathan's Facebook page was full of photos and news links about Alfred's case, with comment threads where others mocked the Justice for Alfred rallies. In a widely shared photo from his page, a group of white men in masks and camouflage sit holding rifles as if about to go for a hunt. There were several rallies in response to the death of Alfred and the handling of his case by law enforcement. One of those rallies took place in February 2014 and was organized by the New Black Panther Party, led at the time by Quanell X. Quanell X is an activist from Houston, Texas. Now, I have my opinions about Quanell X and his activism, but we'll save that for a later episode. There's a video of a confrontation between Quanell X and Not Racist Nathan at this particular rally, and it's chock full of quotable gems. One such gem is a rattled Not Racist Nathan warning Quanell to keep my family out your name. Keep my family out your name. <laughs> I also want to say that while I have opinions on Quanell X in this video, I'll put them aside. A big linebacker plus built brother in a suit putting a racist, excuse me, a non-racist in his place just makes a girl feel, as they say in the South, mannish. Judge your mammy. Judge your mammy. Anyway, do a search on YouTube for Quanell X versus Nathan Ener, E-N-E-R. You will hear mention of Not Racist Nathan's daughter, Ashley. I don't know how true it is, but it's said in the video that Ashley stated her father knew what happened to Alfred. We'll probably never know the full story, however, because Ashley was killed in a car accident in 2017. While rumors and speculation continued to swirl, Sheriff Maddox sat tight-lipped for nearly a year. He claimed that he'd been unable to answer questions due to an active investigation, but in August 2014, he was ready to talk, 
starting with disputing some of the details surrounding the discovery of Alfred's body. Of the discovery, Maddox said the following. The footage showed this as, as being a clean area. The areas that we were searching were not clean. You know, that was some of the toughest searching there that you could do. The brush was so thick there that there were only two ways that you were going to find a person. That was either to step on him or to smell him. Maddox continued, everything there matched perfectly to exactly what the eyewitness stated there that Alfred took his cell phone and put it in his sock and ran up the road. And after he kept running, you know, we found all of the clothing except for the ones there that he had on. So it matched what the investigation showed. When asked about the condition of Alfred's body, specifically his throat, tongue, eyes, and ears, the sheriff responded that his throat was not cut, his throat was not slashed, his tongue was not cut out. Nothing of those things there that were said there happened. We have to go with not only what the original autopsy report said, but there was a lot of pathologists to look at this other than the original one, including some very renowned pathologists, and all of them agree and concurred there with the original autopsy. The subject of Maddox's daughter and her alleged affair with Alfred were brought up. He said that no member of his family knew or had even met Alfred Wright, pointing out that Alfred was from Jasper, whereas he and his family were from Sabine County. It's like, they're like right there together. Okay. At some point, Cindy Maddox made a statement via Facebook where she strongly denied knowing of or having any relationship with Alfred or his family. And that smells like a crock of BS to me. They were co-workers. She scheduled his appointments. Okay. In a press release, it was revealed that two days before Alfred's death, he exchanged 20 text messages and 35 phone calls with a man by the name of Shane Hadnot to discuss the purchase of cocaine and other drugs. And this is where we introduce Shane Hadnot, and we will leave off with Shane Hadnot, who we will discuss in part two of The Search for Right. I was not planning on this being a two-part episode, but here we are. Next week, we'll learn more about Shane Hadnot and his alleged role in the death of Alfred Wright. We'll look at the investigation in depth and maybe have a little discussion on, on Facebook because this is a lot. I had a hard time not turning this into a think piece as I, as I researched. I have a lot of opinions about this. Anyway, thank you for listening. If you have not done so already, please like Black Missing and Missing on Facebook, follow on Instagram, and submit cases to blackmissingandmissing at gmail.com. Please join me next week for part two, episode five. Good night, good morning, good day, whenever, wherever, whatever. And as always, be safe, be vigilant, be aware. And we'll talk next week.